Hey everyone, welcome back or welcome for your first time. Andy Kay here. I help to manage these meetups behind the scenes and I'm going to give a brief introduction before I turn it over to Andrew. Thank you everyone for joining us live and welcome to our 29th virtual weekly hangout. Just a reminder that we'll leave plenty of space in these meetups for discussion and Q&A. So if you have questions for Andrew or if a question is sparked during his talk, you can use the raise your hand feature and at the right time, I'll give you the audio to ask your question or you can type your question in the chat section and at the right time, I'll read your question to Andrew. So thanks again for joining us today. And without further ado, I'll turn it over to Andrew. Hey everybody, do you like my, do you like, uh, um, my shirt here? So and actually, like I said the other day, I'm, I'm beaming in from a, a pure land actually. This is so awesome. I got tired of my green screen. I pull it down. And so I'm wearing a blue shirt that's acting like the green screen. And so I get this whole image now that just comes in. It's, it's perfect for like a loose reform dream yoga stuff. I just love it. <laughs> totally, totally awesome. So I also really like everybody turn on the camera for just a second so I can just wave hi. It's so, it's so fun to just see people because otherwise you know, I'm, I'm, oh, where we go, literally screened out and I have no kind of contact. I'm just talking to this electronic thingy. So, oh, that's great. Thank you. Love it. Grazie, molto grazie. All right, cool. So, so here we go. Uh, yeah, 29 of these. Holy moly. I had no idea it was going to go on this long. Um, for those of you who may be new, uh, I do a little housekeeping stuff, a small, pretty much spontaneous riff. What, what I like about these events so much is uh, I don't have to prepare a thing. <laughs> it makes me very happy. And it's all about me. As long as I'm happy, things are good. I just show up and, uh, I, you know, five minutes before coming down, I go, oh, what should I talk about today? And then, you know, something pops up. So I'll, I'll mention a, a little riff on something today. And then what makes these things what they are is, is uh, you, your participation, your questions. So this is a chance for us to just basically be very specific about the stuff you want to talk about. Um, and so Andy will kind of pipe in those questions and then we'll just run with it as we usually do. So a couple things. Um, I just, just did an interview, I think a Tuesday, with my, my good friend, Dustin DePerna, who I've known Dustin for years, but I've actually never seen him shine. Um, and I was blown away. I mean, we talked for about hour 40 minutes. He's, a, a, I think, one of the world's leading integral theorists. He's a really smart guy. Um, and we had just an amazing, uh, rich, provocative romp over just a ton of topics. And so we'll post that for those of you who are nightclub members, that'll be posted. And um, one of the things I really kind of pressed him, not pressed him, but th that I really brought up as a point for discussion was um, talking in some detail about states versus structures of consciousness and also vantage points. And he knows more about this almost than anybody. He's written several books just on this topic. Um, and so it was tremendous fun. Uh, Francis Tiso, this amazing Christian mystic theologian scholar who um, is author of a number of books, one on Milarepa, my main guy in Tibetan Buddhism. He's my main dude. And then, as I mentioned, I think if you were here last week, this astounding work of scholarship, I don't have it within grabbing range, 
called uh, Rainbow Body and Resurrection, which is a, a, an incredibly interesting, long, um, deep dive into the most esoteric aspects of not only Buddhism and, and rainbow body, but how this ties into to Christianity, um, really esoteric Christianity. And he tracks down some resources that, I mean, I was just blown away. So Father uh, Tiso has agreed to riff with me and, and we're actually having a really nice conversation back and forth online. Um, the Deeper Dive, my annual program that used to be in Sedona every year is now online. Um, and there's some real advantages to that. It's two three-day weekends. That's not, not tomorrow, but the week after tomorrow. Um, you don't have to pay for the flights. You don't have to pay. Sedona's great, but the lodging, everything's a little on the high side. So um, we're going to uh, drop into that thing starting next Friday. And it's by far my, my best, deepest dive into the nocturnal practices, especially dream yoga. <clears throat> and so I'm super excited about that. I'm introducing a, a whole set of practices actually that I've never taught anywhere, period, before these generation stage practices, um, which are absolutely core to the more subtle nuances of... Um, yeah, just the induction methods from the, from a kind of Vajrayana approach to lucidity. So I'm actually quite excited about that. There's a practice that I'll be presenting that I've never offered before. So I'm, I'm pretty jazzed about it, honestly. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite programs of the year. So I'm super psyched about that. And Andy, I think, is going to post um, the link to that sort of thing. Um, our book group is, is still cruising. Andy, if you can put a link up to that. This is a, an ongoing thing. I think we're in week five. Uh, on, on my book, Dreams of Light. And this book uh, group has taken on added dimensions as well, because originally I thought I was just going to read the book and just riff, which I'm still doing. But I've introduced a, a, a new practice there that is not at all in the book, uh, a really subtle, profound investigation into the nature of appearance, mind, reality. And so every week um, I'm augmenting the understanding of this, uh, I think, really um, fantastic practice. So come join us for that. So what I wanted to say spontaneously today is I've been, I've been um, like everybody else these days, especially these up <clears throat> these weeks coming up to this election, it's an amazingly charged time. Have you noticed? I mean, it's like amazingly charged. And I was watching Lester Holt the other day where they did a little thing on, on the epidemic of mental um, stress. Um, and an 800, 800% increase in Google searches for anxiety, depression, amazing. And a really disturbing bit of data. I don't remember the exact age, maybe it was under 17 years old. I don't remember precisely, but they said there's a 50% increase in 17 year olds and below. Um, and I don't know quite how they collect this data. It must be through uh, social media studies that are, are talking about harming themselves or even committing suicide. I mean, it's just like unbelievable how charged this is. And, and um, you know, sometimes I think that I'm above that fray, but um, far from it. And, and so I think this kind of understanding this baseline angst, I mean, we have this general existential anxiety anyway, period. But now everything is just amped, like, have you noticed? And so I wanted to share just a tiny little thing um, about a particular topic that has helped me enormously on this. And this is this vast, vast teaching on what are called the samskaras, S-A-M, 
S-K-A-R-A. It's a huge multivalent term in both Buddhism and Hinduism. And the reason this came into my mind this week is I, I had a I had an encounter that that was really revealing to me where um, my reaction to this particular encounter was way out of proportion to the actual encounter itself. In other words, it was a relatively innocuous encounter that for some reason just really wigged me out, just completely like, like what the heck, WWTF is going on here? And, and then I, I really started to think about it. It's like, why am I so triggered? Why is this one thing really triggering me here? And then, you know, as I sat with it, as I'm prone to do now, um, instead of turning on the TV or running for a drink or, um, and don't get me long, wrong, I, I love to watch TV. And as you know, I love my margaritas, right? <laughs> you know that. I just sat with it. I literally went up into my shrine room and I sat with this, just like this fire, you know, I was like, wow. And I just sat with it and I sat with it. And then immediately what came to mind was this research I've done over the last years about these samskaras, which you need to know about these puppies. Um, they are incredibly powerful explanatory teachings on exactly this type of hyperreactivity. And the way it played into, into my um, situation is that I, I was acting in a wildly disproportionate way simply because I had not previously digest a samskara. So in other words, I had a previous experience that didn't go over all that great. Um, and this previous experience, I hadn't digested it. I hadn't metabolized it. I hadn't allowed that energy to flow through me. And so then what happens is that, that um, unprocessed, unfinished energy then becomes lodged in my unconscious body-mind matrix, literally at the level of the subtle body. This is what ties the subtle body into all these knots. So there's a subtle body anatomy and physiology that takes place here. Um, in a real way, even psychologically, what, what's the maxim? What you resist persists. So I resisted processing, digesting, metabolizing this experience. And therefore when, and this is the way some scars work, they lie latent in your unconscious body mind matrix. And then they're activated like seeds when a, a situation similar to the initial situation that planted the samskara comes about. And then kahoosh, you're not really reacting appropriately to what just happened. You're bringing this massive history to it. And I love this James Joyce quote, history is a nightmare from which I am trying to awake. That's an astounding quote. In this regard, it's like samskaras are nightmares from which I'm trying to awake. And so um, I had not processed, digested, metabolized, burned through that previous experience. It was lying underneath it all. A similar experience came on and kabang, I just went off in a way that was like, just like crazy out of proportion. So I sat with it and here, here's the way to work with these puppies. This is what I should have done the first time. Um, when I rejected the experience, didn't process it, didn't allow that energy to flow through it, it. It reminds me of what Suzuki Roshi once beautifully said. He said, you know, we shouldn't be smoky fires. We should be a good bonfire. We should, we should live our lives as a good bonfire. And what he means by this, and this is my riff, is in order not to deposit these samskaras, and samskaras are karmic triggers, when samskaras are present, 
karma is created. So they are hugely important. So what Suzuki Roshi is saying that is that we, sh we should, my, my language, we should cremate our experience as we live it. Um, so therefore we leave not just no carbon footprint, but no karmic footprint. In other words, no samskara. In, in Sanskrit, the term is alangrasa or hatapaka, where, where you just devour the experience. And I had not cremated that first experience. I had not devoured it. I thought I did, but I didn't. And out of sight is not out of mind. Out of sight is into the unconscious mind where it got buried, lodged. And now infects affects me. Um, samskara, so I, they're a hugely important topic in, in the Bardo teachings. When I talk about them in that context, I often say that when you die, you will meet your maker. <laughs> Even though in Buddhism, there is no creator principle, you will meet your maker when you die. And that's what you're going to meet. You're going to meet your samskaras, literally. Um, that's what's waiting for you when you die. All that unconscious stuff, that's what comes up in the bardos. And so you will meet your maker. And these, you can meet your maker now. That's the key. And so when I had this really uncomfortable experience, um, which was totally my gig, um, and I took responsibility for it. I, I went upstairs, I sat with it. And then the way to work with it is literally you just stay in that fire. It's like Da John once said, the great iconoclastic American mystic, the fire must have its way. The fire must have its way. And so I sat up there and just burned in a certain sense. I didn't indulge. And here's the practice. <clears throat> I allowed myself to stay with this incredibly uncomfortable feeling which was precisely the same incredible, uncomfortable feeling I had before that I didn't have the guts to stay with. So here it is again, it came up again. And this time I said, okay, I've got to deal with this. So I sat with it and the practice was literally just to be in those fires. Don't dilute it with conceptuality. Don't dilute it with discursive thinking. Don't dilute it with your storylines. All the things that come into play, oh, they, you know, just a constant spin doctoring of the ego that keeps these nasty samskaras alive. This is what keeps karma going. So when you're working with this stuff, this is how you purify karma. This is also how you stop the creation of new karma. Staying with really, mostly in these cases, unwanted experience. Um, you usually don't, we don't like these things. Ego doesn't like so-called negative experiences. And so it doesn't relate to it properly. And then it gets thrown into your body-mind matrix. You know, what, what I often playfully say, what is refused in experience becomes the refuse heap of the unconscious mind. And so then, you know, we'll see how, how successful I was. But, you know, I just sat with this hyper-reactivity and allowed it to kind of just burn um, without commentary, just literally wake down and just stay with it without commentary. It ain't easy, man. It ain't easy. Parenthetically, for those of you who do really deep inner yoga practices, like the inner fire practices, Kundalini, Tumo Chandali, that's precisely what that does. That, that supercharged fire practice is exactly designed to do this. But if you do this moment to moment, you don't have to do that fire practice <laughs> because you cremate the experience when you live it. And so I wanted to throw that into the mix because right now, uh, I mean, it's in my experience, um, this, this extraordinarily high of the temperature on, I mean, talk about the metaphor of global warming. 
the temperature is just so high. The baseline is just in the inflammatory processes. The world is inflamed. The world has a fever. Socially, culturally, I mean, the world is on fire. There's a sutra by the, um, uh, not by the Buddha, because the Buddha didn't write anything, but called the Fire Sutra. Check it out. It's all about what's happening now. This world is on fire. And this type of practice using that metaphor is a very powerful anti-inflammatory. It's a way to, to purify these inflammatory processes by actually ironically staying in the fires. And that's what purifies it. Um, and so there's gonna be more of it. I mean, these next, these next two weeks are gonna be like, who knows what is going to happen? I mean, my friend uh, David Lloyd was sharing me what, with me what Noam Chomsky said, this amazing father of analytic philosophy, American linguistics, social activist, amazing. A powerful man, he said, don't, according to Noam Chomsky's analysis, what we are experiencing right now today is the most dangerous time in um, human civilization. There's never been a time as dangerous as right now. And I think we all feel it. So I don't need to preach the choir about that. But I did want to give you a skill set, a, a tool that comes from the wisdom tradition that I have found to be extraordinarily helpful along these lines. So that's my refer today. That's my, that's my, my sermon. <laughs> and so questions, comments about this or anything else. Um, I actually talk about this stuff um, in, in pretty exhaustive detail in other contexts. Again, another chance to, to put my lemonade stand up. This course that I did that we recently posted on uh, working with fear and anxiety in an uncertain world there's an entire talk on, on just this topic, which is why when I had such a heightened hyper experience of it this week, I immediately came back to that. I pulled up my notes, I looked at it again, I read it, and I said, perfect explanatory um, kind of template for what's happening and also the tools to work with it. So I just wanted to share that with you. <clears throat> so as usual, now is your time. <clears throat> All right, well, let's start with some of the raised hands. And uh, we'll give the audio first to Edward. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm good. Uh, this, is, this is a big problem. Every time, see, I scan across your bookshelf, and immediately I see Evan Thompson, Waking Dreaming Being. I, I, it's crazy. I get so distracted. I, I can, I'm going to psychoanalyze you by the way you read. Sorry, my friend. I love it. I love it. I'm such a nerd. Do you approve? I just can't help myself. No, I have to take my glasses off to see the titles of some of these, but I, from what I see here, I approve. Yes, you're welcome. <laughs> I've, got, I've got two questions. Okay. One is probably pretty simple, the other is not. Okay. So let's start with the not simple one first. Okay. When I wake up in the middle of the night, I can see a whole field of tiglis. The whole sky is just, the whole room is just filled with tiglis. I go back to sleep, get up again, to pee again, all tiglis. Nice. And so I've been reading reading the the fourth volume in the 17 Dzogchen Tantras. Uh, that one talks about Togol. Yeah. It's a theoretical base of Togol. Yeah. And who's, although who's the, the, who's the translator of that, by the way, Ed? Which which translation are you are you looking at? Is that Padmakara or is that- uh... Acharya Malcolm Smith. Malcolm Smith. 
Oh, wow. And what, what's the actual, I don't have that copy. What's the actual um, title of that one? Do you know? Oh, I'll get it. Hang on. I'm a, I'm a huge student of Togal, so I'd love, I'd love to see what you're reading. 30, give me f 10 seconds. I'll, I'll give you 10 seconds. And if you're not back in 10, we're all going to explode. 10, 9, just kidding. <laughs> Take your time, my friend. Blazing Lamp Tantra and the, and the Threaded String of Pearls. Oh, what a great title. Blazing Lamp Tantra? Yes. And the Threaded String of Pearls. Yeah, I love it. Yep. Okay. Excellent. Thank you for that. So I've been getting theoretical understanding of being able to see Tigley's from this book. And the, I guess the main, the, my main takeaway came from the introduction, the translator's introduction, mm -hmm. where he said, the main point of being able to see Tigley's is to be able to differentiate between Tigley's. Tigley's are in the Dharmakaya realm and, what, and the other stuff in the room, like the books and everything else in the room, Right. Are in the uh, mm -hmm. Alaya consciousness. Yep. And so that's really the main takeaway being able to differentiate between those two. Okay. And so, how is that going to help me when I hit the Bardot? Oh my gosh, it's going to help you phenomenally. Um, yeah, this is a fantastic question. So, Tigli, swirling iridescent bindus. This is another one of these multivalent terms. Um, the definition of which is context dependent. In this case, you're you're obviously referring it, it to this. My favorite of all practices are these Togal practices. Um, the most profound set of teachings I've ever encountered in my life are related to Togal and the Togal visions. And so, yes, um, I mean, good for you that you can actually start to see these swirling iridescent bindus because um, they intimate, you know, it actually could be the a beginning of the first of the four stages of Togal visions where you actually start to see the light of the Dharmata, which is in fact, this is where it comes into the Bardos. The, when you enter the luminous Bardo of Dharmata slash Dharmakaya, this is in fact what's going to greet you. This is your primordial maker. This is even, this even subsends the samskaras um, because the, the samskaras are operative at the level of, of SEM, conventional relative reality, what you're talking about here is the foundation of Rigpa, the foundation of reality altogether. It's an intimation of, of what's referred to as luminosity throughout the traditions. And so when you gain familiarity with these practices, either spontaneously or through um, dark practice, light practice, Togal, then you're becoming literally familiar with the very de definition of meditation of something that will become um, revealed to you in the Bardo Dhammata. Without this type of practice, you will not recognize. Um, you will just gloss right over this and pop into the karmic bardo of becoming where in fact your subscribers will take over. So as you heighten your familiarity with these bindus, they will go through a series of developmental strategies, which is beyond the scope of what I can get into here. This is what is described in, in the sequence of the four Togal visions. And it's colossally important. But one thing I do wanna say, I'd, I'd love to hear what Malcolm says about this because one of the things that you can do with these bindus when they become available to you, and literally it's just a process of discovery. You're not fabricating them. This is why these practices are different from generation stage practices. You do not generate these. They are natural, spontaneous discoveries. They're not created. 
they're radiated by the radiance of the mind. In fact, I've been able to see them for 20 years or more. Yeah, good for you. That's actually quite good. And so what you want to do, what you can play with this, um, and this is why I'd like to read what Malcolm says, because what, what, what you shared didn't quite land with me, but I, I would have to read what he has to say. What you want to do with these at the level of what you're talking about is you fundamentally um, want to implicate that light with everything you see. In other words, you do not want to make this kind of differentiation. Eventually, um, this light will, will actually uh, challenge the ontological status of your books or everything else you're talking about and reveal to you the underlying luminous nature of whatever arises. So they are, in fact, an intimation of seeing the world as light, which is key to enlightenment. So good for you, man. That's awesome. Continue. You're so on the right track. So let me ask a <laughs> second question. It's much simpler. <laughs> supposing I... Supposing I'm, I awaken in the bardo, I become lucid in the bardo, and then what, I'm whisked away to the pure land, or what? What exactly happens? Depends what on I, where you are. Yeah, great what question. Happen, and what happens in the pure land? How much time do you have? <laughs> These are great questions. <clears throat> okay, so another chance I get to, I get to plug my wares, okay? <clears throat> if you want to know what happens in the pure land, I literally was just in conversation with Bob Thurman this week, in fact, yesterday. Um, we're going to be doing two three-day events, January, February, on Sutra and Tantra pure land. So if you really want to know about those puppies, take that course. This is a colossally huge topic. What happens with your other question is, it depends on which bardo you're in, depends on where you are. If you attain lucidity, you can attain lucidity in any one of the bardos, but then the, the, the kind of implementation strategies are a little bit different in each bardo. So if you maintain this lucidity, and, and I love what you're saying, um, you know, we're talking about lucid dying here, conscious dying, that's what you want. You want to gain awareness and therefore control over the dying process. So if you can do that in the Bardo of Dharmata, then literally that's, I mean, you've won the game. That's Buddhahood in one lifetime. And then from there, what you do, oh my gosh, again, this is what we talk about with Sutra Tantra and also Bardo of Dharmata teachings. Fundamentally, you, quote unquote, because there isn't one, can do anything. That's a fantastic safeguard, isn't it? Because there is no longer you, there's no longer the restraining orders necessary to curtail this thing called you. You, quote unquote, can do anything you actually can create a pure land. You can arise in any emanation body. Uh, you can take all the various forms of, of the tuku phenomena that again, these are massively big topics. If you miss that, and most people do, you wake up in the, in the karmic bardo becoming. Most people will sleep through that as well and have a non-lucid bardo experience. If you wake up, then um, what you do depends on where you are in that bardo. The farther along you go into it, the more the winds um, develop and the more difficult it does get to create, generate conscious choice. You're, uh, the farther you go into it, the more your habits decide for you, your karma chooses for you, thinks for you, and basically you're buffeted around involuntarily by the force of your bad habits. But even with that, at any stage, at any point, and that means right here, right now, as us talking, liberation is always available to you. Recognition and liberation are simultaneous, they're always available. In the karmic part of becoming, pure land is probably your best approach at that point. So at that point, um, using again, pure land teachings and POA, 
you FedEx your consciousness, probably easiest visa requirements, as you know, easy visa, easiest visa access is Sukhavati. That's, that's why the Buddha Amitabha created that pure land. It's, uh, it's pretty easy to get a ticket into that pure land. And then you wanna go there. The reason you wanna go there again, I, I probably have to let these topics go to let other people on. This is a colossal um, issue. I mean, the Sutra and Tantra pure lands are a really big topic, which in my estimation are vastly undertaught. And it's one reason Bob and I are gonna be riffing on it. So maybe that's enough for now, my friend. Fantastically good questions, I love it. All right, thank um, you. And just continue what you're doing. You're definitely doing something right. Especially with all those damn books. But you know what would make me really happy here, bud, is next time when you come on, you have three or four of my books right behind you so that I can see them. That would make me really happy. Okay? I've got all your books. They're in another bookshelf. Ah, all right, buddy. <laughs> thank you. I love, your, I love your stuff. Thank you, man. <laughs> uh, thanks, Edric. Um, I'm going to read this chat question from Jolene. It's uh, two questions. Okay. So is there a book or website that outlines the subtle body so that I can understand all the contents of this body? I heard you mention something about the courts of Naropa. The courts of Naropa? Courts, C-O-U-R-T-S. Courts of Naropa. Uh, I didn't say that. That's a phrase I've actually never used. Um, I don't even know what that refers to. If you can just get it up, that, that's an interesting one to me. I've never heard that phrase before. Um, but in terms of the inner body stuff, yeah, um, it depends on which kind of tradition you want to approach it from. Um, the Hindus have a ton to say about it. Anodia Judith wrote this book called Eastern Body, Western Mind, I think it's called. It's a fairly okay introduction, over-the-counter introduction to subtle body principles. Um, Reggie Ray, in his book, Secrets of the Vajra World, has uh, some pretty decent stuff on inner um, yogic stuff, subtle body stuff. Um, the absolute Bible here is Rongjung Dorje's uh, Zambo Nangden, The Profound Inner Reality. Um, this one may be a little bit trickier to get. It used to be a restricted text. It maybe still is, I don't know. I think it still might be. My dear, dear friend, Elizabeth Callahan, translated this masterpiece. It's a wicked, wickedly difficult book to translate. And there's a reason they call it the profound inner reality, the profound inner principles. It's beyond profound. And it's mandatory. It's actually considered one of the three seminal core books in um, Kagyu Vajrayana Buddhism. It's a seminal shape-shifting text. If you can get that, that's the book, but it is not easy. Um, you're not only talking about the incredibly sophisticated anatomy and physiology of that subtle body, but its implications to states of consciousness. It's, it's like reading a, a, a medical textbook. Um, so yeah, uh, I think she titles it Profound Inner Principles, Elizabeth Callahan, but again, it may be restricted. If you, re if you meet the qualifications to get this text and I don't know you, maybe you have those qualifications, get it. Otherwise I would Google Profound Inner Reality, Profound Inner Principles. Kempo Rinpoche is taught on it. Trungpa Rinpoche is taught about it. Kempo Kartar Rinpoche is taught about it. Most of these teachings are not in the public domain. They're in transcript manuscript form. So you have to Google them, go to this to like Namzo Bangza or whatever it's called, um, the Karma Triyama, uh, Karma Triyana Dharma Chakra KTD website. Kempo Kartar has, has written some pretty cool stuff on this as well. So um, that's what comes to mind. 
it's, uh, I encourage you to explore it. It actually, the inner yogic subtle body practices constitute one third basically of all tantric practice. It's a massively important topic and one that I really encourage you to explore. Okay, so that's what comes to mind. Okay, um, you mentioned in another talk you gave recently that dreams come from the Dharmakaya, but they manifest in the Sambhogakaya. Do the samskaras reside there too? Where's the there? <laughs> Where's the referent? Is it Sambhogakaya or is it Dharmakaya? This is a tricky question and another good one. I love these questions, they're awesome. In a certain provisional sense, in this, and I'll tell you why it's provisional, everything comes from the Dharmakaya because it's the body of truth, body of reality. Everything comes from it. But here's the kicker, and that, and that includes um, samskaras, that includes dreams, that includes everything. This is the groundless ground that gives birth to both Sam and Rigpa, to samsara and nirvana, to everything. But when we say that it comes from it, and, and some of you have been listening to my stuff recently, this is a repeated riff that I'm on right now. There's a subtle near enemy to that um, type of approach because what it tends to denote is that somehow the Dharmakaya is somehow separate from Sambhogakaya, Namanakaya, or this. In other words, it, it begets a very subtle form of cosmological dualism that everything arises you know, from like the implicate order, if you wanna use that metaphor, everything arises from this, that has provisional validity as a heuristic, as a teaching tool. But it's a powerful near enemy because it denotes the subtle cosmological dualism where, where then you think, oh, I have to return to this primordial state. What, what is happening right here or now does not give me access to that. And that's the problem. Because um, it doesn't come from the Dharmakaya, it comes as the Dharmakaya. You see what I'm saying? So it right now, and this is this is so important. This is this is the ground of real non-theism. That what you're looking for, you don't have to wait a second. I mean, literally, as we're speaking right here, right now, there's only the Dharmakaya. That's it. There's only Nirvana. That's it. We just have to recognize it. And so I, I'm just sliding, sliding that in as a sidebar commentary because I I think this is colossally important. Um, because otherwise we just slide into all these very subtle traps. And, and the subtle ones are the most dangerous ones. Things don't arise from the Dharmakaya, nothing more than a provisional level. They arise as the Dharmakaya. And so therefore, since you use those terms, you know, the fruition is not the Dharmakaya. The fruition is not Sambhogakaya nor Dharmakaya. On one level you could say, and I can't unpack all these, but since you use these terms, maybe this means something to you, the fruition is the integration of all. Svabhavakakaya, and I can't spell all these terms, but isn't, isn't it great? Sanskrit is like baby language, right? Svabhavakakaya, it's like babies talk in Sanskrit, right? Svabhavakakaya. If I ever had a kid, you know, I, I, I'd lean over his or her cradle and she'd look up at me and go, Svabhavakakaya, you know, it's like baby language, I love it. <laughs> In uh, the Hindu world, this is what's called Turiyatita. That's, that's the point. So long-winded answer, which could be a lot more winded because this is so important to a good question. Everything comes from the Sambhogakaya. I mean, I'm sorry, from the Dharmakaya. Everything arises as the Dharmakaya. Now, specifically when you're having a dream, that's Sambhogakaya dimension. That's the frequency of the Sambhogakaya. So that's what's being emphasized in the dream space. So on that level, then you would say dreams are, when recognized, an aspect of Sambhogakaya. So 
it's a little technical. I don't want to get too nerdy, but since you're throwing out those terms, I'm trusting that some of these other terms may mean something to you. Um, and so we don't have too much roadkill. I'll probably let that one go for now. <laughs> Great questions today. Cool. Uh, let's go back to the raised hands. We'll do Wendy and then Alex. Hi, I, Hi. can you hear me? Yes, and I can see you. Great. I am really new. Okay. We're speaking a foreign language. That's why I stopped. Exactly. It is foreign. I, st don't worry about it. I, I almost feel like I have entered the wrong classroom. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. You know what I do? Let me just say something. It's, it's, I, I'm simply responding to what people are directing at me. Um, and so please do not feel intimidated. Um, ask the question from your heart, from a dimension that you're at. And don't worry about this other stuff. And, and this is actually important. Um, fundamentally, what, what we're talking about, and we meaning the wisdom traditions, I'm just a pathetic mouthpiece for it, is unbelievably simple. And I'm not kidding. I'm not being smart alecky here. What we're actually trying to discover is unbelievably simple, really. It's just confusion that's complicated. Delusion is complicated. So there's all these complicated teachings, like the stuff I've been blabbing on, to meet the confused mind and then eventually kind of pound it into submission. So please do not be intimidated. You're in the right place. Um, ask your question freely and don't worry about this other stuff. That's just for you know nerds like me who get off on words like that. So so just relax, enjoy yourself and ask. Okay. Your question. okay. I, I, I'm, I started meditating in 1971. So I'm not new to meditation mm -hmm. and, uh, and different states of consciousness, but Sanskrit, Buddhist terminology, yeah. what you're talking about. Right, I hear you. Um, but I do have an experience um, that I, that no one's been able to explain to me. Okay. That happens that is somewhat objective. Okay. Is when I'm uh, with someone, usually it's a client or someone and we're going into a deep place. Okay. Uh, you're, every, you're, you're a therapist. Yeah, actually, I, I'm a minister, and that's oh, the, wonderful. what I oh, work fantastic. under. Fantastic. Uh, everything turns into light. And I mean everything. I don't mean just the person has an aura around them. I mean the chair they're sitting on, the wall behind them. Everything goes uh, so white I can't hardly see anything but their eyes. Maybe. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Um, and I don't know what that is. Yeah. I mentioned it to someone else and they said, well, maybe something is wrong with your eyes. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, but I don't think that is the case because it, it happens in times where I'm feeling very connected and um, feeling like we're together reaching a different level of uh, awareness. Fantastic. Well, thank, first of all, thank you for sharing that. That's really beautiful. <clears throat> and secondly, say a little bit more, and you were actually saying what I want to hear more about. Tell me a little bit more about the contexts, <clears throat> both, the, both the feeling tone contexts, and, and just generally, are, are there particular common denominators in your experiential setting that actually evoke this experience? Can you say more about that? Well, I, I work with uh, inherited ancestral issues with my okay. clients. And so it's often uh, 
I'll often say, well, let's bring in your mom and dad, mm. you know, and uh, so it's often when we're creating a communication with um, spirits on the other side, this okay. will happen. Okay. Um, I have some clients I've had for many years and I just get together with them and we immediately go into this state like nice. like we're an anchor for one another. And does, and does your client, do your clients then also share yes. similar things? Some, so they some, also, oh, Sometimes wow. they do too. And so lastly, and then I'll, I'll give you some senses of what may be happening. What are you feeling when this happens? Can you, can you put some names to what's actually happening um, affectively, uh, emotionally with it, you? What it's you very... Um, calm it's very still uh nothing is happening yeah <laughs> there's yeah. nothing happening <laughs> it's just that's it's sort of like the whiteness of oh there's no edges to anything no boundaries yeah no yeah and so it doesn't in any way frighten you it doesn't bewilder you it's, oh it's more, i love it yeah exactly that's what i was looking for that's what i was looking I love for. it yeah so this could be a number of things and and, you know, sometimes um, the actual specificity may not be super important, but definitely what comes to mind here, and somewhat akin to Edward's question earlier, is that, and, and this is not a metaphor, this is actually quite literal, the world is made of light. Um, right. I mean, literally, it's made of light. And, and actually, you know, when, when, when I bring Father Tiso, you should definitely come on to that, read his book, Rainbow Body and Resurrection. Um, this book is largely about light. And, and so when we actually open, and this is why I wanted to get a sense of what was happening from your side, because when we open and we, you know, kind of transcend conceptuality and we become bigger than ourselves, all sorts of really wondrous um, so-called mystical experiences can actually occur. And, and one is similar to what you're talking about, where the world, like Ed was talking about, he was seeing all these little bindus. Mm -hmm. Bindus are, are literally swirling little sesame seeds of light. So not disconnected to what he was talking about, honestly. And so you're basically opening to the luminous nature of, of reality, the luminous nature of mind um, and reality altogether which is it literally made of light. I mean, it, this is not a metaphor. Um, and so, yeah, I'll, I mean, I, I just applaud you for it. Um, you can cultivate that, you can nurture it, and, and you can actually start to stabilize this kind of core aspect of literal enlightenment. There's a reason that word is so beautiful and how it uses it. And I also have to say, even even in the realm of physics, this is a slightly controversial area within the scientific community, but David Bohm, who is a major student of Einstein, you may you know his work. I'm familiar with him. Yeah, wholeness and the implicate order. He goes so far as to say quite literally that the world is made of frozen light, um, even at the level of physics. And so what you're saying is you're simply tapping into the nature of reality. And um, I find it um, not only interesting as that process occurs, I find it extremely interesting as that process fades. In other words, how my mind usually conjoined with the intrusion of conceptuality, self-reference mm -hmm. and the like, how then I contract away from that, reify it and basically construct my world um, out of that fundamental bed. And so what you're talking about 
is something that's actually quite literally practiced and cultivated with exactly the practices that Ed was talking about. There's a very um, fantastically subtle tradition called Togal, T-H-O-G-A-L, crossing over into spontaneous presence, which are practices that quite literally invoke these types of experiences. Um, sometimes you go into the dark to elicit, elicit them. Sometimes they happen spontaneously, like with you and Ed. It doesn't, you know, because it's the nature of reality, it's no surprise that these things start to occur. Um, I can put names on it, but again, these are Sanskrit names that again, they won't land with you. So I won't do that. Uh, but that, yeah, this is not at all uncommon. I have to tell you, it is not at all uncommon. Um, especially when you do these kind of light-based practices, you actually invoke these qualities. And the affective component is what makes it different from entopic vision. So you mentioned very interestingly, and I think this is a very smart thing from your end, we can't rule out that there are in fact um, ocular ophthalmologic mm -hmm. um, phenomena that take place. They're called entopic visions where, you know, when leukocytes run through the capillaries, you, you get these visions. And there's, there are aspects to that that occur within our hardware. But this is more than that. And the reason is because there's an affective component. When you have these more ocular based things, they're just interesting but they're not mind blowing. They're not, you don't have the same heart opening experiences of, of bliss, love or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's how you can um, centrifuge out whether it's an entopic physiological process or it's in fact some level of contact with reality. It's the affective component that centrifuges those two out. So you're onto something much more profound than just what happens with these visions. And um, I mean, I can just say congratulations. You know, you and Ed should probably communicate because you guys are doing something pretty cool with the light business. And uh, yeah, I, there, I can refer you to some literature here, um, but unfortunately I'm only familiar with it from the Tibetan point of view. Probably the one I would recommend, honestly, is this mind blowing book by Father Francis Tiso, T-I-S-O. Read that book on, on Rainbow Body and Resurrection. Because okay. he approaches this lens, uh, this teaching from a Christian lens, and it's really, really beautiful. The Tibetans have very articulate, sophisticated teachings on this, but that may be uh, a little bit above your pay grade <laughs> for, for now. The language. <laughs> and you don't have to worry about that. Um, but in short, it's, 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 these are called nyam, N-Y-A-M very powerful spiritual experiences that denote qualities of opening and they should be celebrated. Um, don't get attached to it. Don't you know, create a, a kind of a metric or bar around it. Um, approach it with a sense of childlike wonder. And then if you really want to progress it fur further, then in fact, you may need to study the traditions that work with this in a very specific articulate way. Um, and so we can return to that if, in fact, at some point that does interest you. But in short, good for you. It's, it's a beautiful, natural state. Um, and so, again, there's so much more to say this. I, I, again, to put my lemonade stand because it's all about me. <laughs> in part two of the book I just published, um, Dreams of Light, mm -hmm. this is all about this topic um, within the context of these nocturnal meditations where I talk about, in fact, this luminosity within a slightly different framework. So that book may be some interest to you. Part two is all about this as well, but you're onto something, it's great. And it's not that unusual. So good for you. Any, any follow-ups on that or? Uh, well, the deeper dive class after listening and, 
and feeling like, oh, I'm not in the, I'm not in the same playground as the rest of you guys. <laughs> uh, maybe I should keep studying for a while before I go into yes, a deeper dive class. Yes. Be, yes, before you do that one, I, I may not recommend that for you. Okay. Um, you know, look at look at my book, Dream Yoga. <clears throat> Just spend I'm, a little I'm bit listening more. to that right now. Oh, okay. Well, if you've done that, honestly, if you're going through that book, that's the only prerequisite because what I don't do in this deeper dive class, I don't do any of the induction stuff. I don't do any of, I wouldn't say any, I don't do most of what's in that Dream Yoga book. And so that's why we call it the deeper dive because people who have read that book, who had some traction, some mileage, want to go further, we go further. Well, um, I, I've only been doing this two months. Oh I my started God. my oh, wow. lucid dream exploration two months ago. Good for you. And three days after I started like being really interested, I had a lucid dream. Isn't that awesome? Uh, well, and I've only had two since then, so I'm not having yeah. them very often. And I pop out immediately. Right, right. But my experiences are extremely profound and physical. Yeah. I, I, I ha have had healing. I've had profound love and gratitude because uh, in reading and studying them, I learned, oh, ask for what you want, you know? <laughs> and I don't really care about flying around so much. Right, right. I, you know, so I, but I'd like more and I'd like them to last more than five seconds. Uh, although my experience lasts for maybe 20 minutes after I wake up, my whole body is flooded with energy. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I, love, I love hearing what you're sharing because, it, you know, I playfully say that these practices um, will show you how to wake up on the right side of the bed, right? Oh, my so God. Instead of waking up on the wrong side and, oh, you got a whole crappy day, these experiences will help you wake up on the right side of the bed. And, and some of them, in fact, um, can be so powerful, can be so transformative, You'll wake up on the right side of the bed and it will affect not just your day, it'll affect your entire life. Um, it'll be uh, dimensions that you can access that, all, that are somewhat akin to the transformative power of a near death experience where you, don't, you just need one of these puppies, right? You don't, you, need, you don't need to have an NDE over and over to shape shift your life. And the reason is because they're, the, they're so foundational, they're so true. And so I, I can share from my own experience that, you know, I've been doing this for decades. I've had experiences, you know, these dreams of clear light, hyper lucid dreams 40 years ago, that the light from those dreams still illuminates everything I do. They're that transformative. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you're, you're suggesting that type of thing. And so that's what makes this stuff so cool. You know, you just, you need just a couple of these puppies and the thermonuclear power is such that it just yes. radiates throughout <laughs> the entirety of your life. So here's my recommendation. Again, I hate to just keep selling my silly stuff. You know, get through the Dream Yoga book. If for some reason it, it feels right, trust your intuition, trust that light, maybe incubate a dream and see. And if, if it feels right, join us for the deeper dive. Um, I, I don't think with your intellect and your um, sophistication that you would be overwhelmed. Um, and don't be intimidated again by all the Sanskrit Tibetan names I've just tossed out. This program is not that um, elite. It's not that esoteric. It's a little bit more accessible. So anyway, that's what comes to mind. But okay. you know, in short, good for you. You're you're you got you're doing something really cool. Excellent. I thank you so much um, 
for allowing me to ask a question and have Absolutely. someone to talk to because uh, that hasn't been otherwise available. You know, isn't it helpful? I have to say, and this is one reason I'm inspired to do this um, because to me, I, I'm not, trust me, I am not a guru. I will never be a guru. I have zero. In fact, I, I hear that word and I just want to run the other way. But maybe I can be a spiritual friend. And, and by that, what I mean is I have been so blessed in my lifetime to have people that are maybe a couple feet ahead of me or maybe a couple miles ahead of me that can really help. You know, I don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, there, are, there are people who have done this. And, and I have been so blessed to be um, the beneficiary of their teachings. And, and, and I do this with some hesitation because like, who am I to espouse this stuff? But I pop this stuff, people keep coming back, I keep talking. Um, that's the only aspiration I have is to try to be a benefit. And, and uh, having so-called elders, spiritual elders, friends, it's colossally important because then, like you said, you know, like you can, there are people that can tell you what's going on. Mm -hmm. Your storyline's different. My storyline's different. But the structure and foundations of the mind heart, it's the same. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, I may talk about it in, in Sanskrit, Tibetan terms, but fundamentally, this is um, trans religious. It, 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 it transcends any domain, um, religious, spiritual, or otherwise. And that's what I, that's why I love to meet people. And that's why I love talking, you know, to Islamic scholars, Christian mystics, Jewish mystics. I, to me, I just love it when I hear other traditions talk about very, very similar things using their vocabulary. That to me is just so terribly exciting. So anyway, thank you for your offerings and your questions and uh, thank keep, you. The, keep the light on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I'll, I'll come back. Okay. Thanks, Wendy. Andrew, would you say the deeper dive is appropriate for someone who has never had a lucid dream? Yeah, it is. And let me say why. Um, again, the only thing that I don't cover in this deeper dive program are all these in entry-level induction methods. Um, this is just for people who want to go beyond that. And so the reason I say it, it's for people who've never had a lucid dream is because what we do in this course, many of you who know me, I we're fundamentally working with the lucidity principle. Lucidity is a code word for awareness. So I just simply use lucid dreams as a type of almost excuse or medium for discussing awareness um, in that particular kind of format. And so part of what the deeper dive does is in fact, it, it spreads that, that um, kind of agenda to um, much more than the dream. So for sure, we'll be talking about dream stuff, absolutely positively, but it's much more than lucid dreaming. It's, it's about using awareness to live lucidly, to die lucidly, to fundamentally wake up to the nature of mind and reality. And, and that's what, you know, when I look around, maybe that's what's a little bit different from what I do than what other people do, is um, while I have tremendous interest in lucid dreaming, per se, for sure. Um, it's, it's a relatively small part of this larger bucket. Um, so I, I say this with real confidence. I'm not trying to bait and switch people that the program is largely about working with mind, work, working with reality, using the medium in the language of the dream. But there again, we also decrypt dream. Dream is code language for manifestation of mind. That's what dream is. So that's the kind of stuff we talk about. Um, so even if you never have a lucid dream, 
this stuff um, I think is, is worth spending some time on because it's about discussing uh, awareness, mind, and, and the nature of reality altogether, so. All right. Okay, let's open up the audio next for Alex and then Myra. Hello, hello, Andrew. Uh, hey, buddy. Uh, this is Alex uh, from- Hi, Alex. Hello, hello, Joseph. Hello, Andy. Uh, you don't get rid of the Mexican so easily. <laughs> and, Love it. Uh, Andrew, I, this, is, this might be a, I have two questions. Okay. And first one, I was talking with a friend who's uh, last weekend and I was telling him that we are always in one of three states. Uh, it's either uh, attraction, aversion, or neutral. There you go. Bingo. <clears throat> yeah. But 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 then and 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 that and then I told him. But and and that's how you you need to find the middle path, you know, between attraction and aversion. And, and he and he went and and said to me. So neutral is the middle path. And, and I was so puzzled and mm -hmm. I couldn't really say, yeah, no, because it didn't quite make sense to me. And I, and I, and I hesitated and, and I've been hesitating. And this question has been lingering in my mind for the past four days, six, five days or whatever. And is it that so? Is it that neutral is the middle path? No. no. I, I knew it wasn't. No, so I knew it wasn't because it doesn't make sense. Doesn't make I, sense. I don't. I can't make the connection. How? Okay. Okay. So you want me to say something about that before the next question? Please. Okay. All right. Thanks, Miguel. So yeah. So you're talking about the three, what are called the three root poisons, right? Yeah. Passion. I want it. And, and this, what you say is is really spot on. Look at your life, right? Passion, I want it. Aggression, I don't want it. And the third one is not so much neutral as it is, um, it, it, it's referring to ignorance. Um, passion, I want it. Aggression, I don't want it. Ignorance, I have no idea. In other words, I, I'm, it, it refers to um, the most fundamental of the poisons. It's actually the poison from which both passion and aggression arise. It's not the same as this kind of neutrality. So there's a slight, I think what needs to be separated here is this idea of the middle way. That's a different thing that I can talk about versus the three poisons altogether. So the three poisons are passion, aggression, and ignorance. And if you take a very close look, it's very easy to see the first two in action. Um, I can, I can uh, connect to passion and aggression pretty easily. But it's not so easy to connect to ignorance. I mean, we often say in my community, it's kind of a, a little funny deal where we talk about emotional upheavals. Oh, that guy's having an emotional upheaval, upheaval of passion, emotional upheaval of aggression. We can recognize that. But I've never heard anybody say, oh, that guy's having uh, an, an emotional upheaval of ignorance. <laughs> it's because it's happening all the time. Ignorance is the primordial um, poison. That baby's happening all the time. And if you want to know if you're under attack by ignorance, 
It's if you're seeing the world dualistically, if you're seeing me separate from you, if you're seeing the world as solid, lasting and independent, it is from that basis that passion and aggression then arise. And so basically you don't have to worry about that one. We are always under a, the attack of ignorance until we attain awakening. So that's one thing. So the second thing, and maybe you can come back and correct it or direct me further, you know, fundamentally it's not a neutrality that we're searching for. And when we talk about the middle way, Madhya, Uma, it's a very classic theme in Buddhism. It doesn't mean like the middle way between this extreme and the other. It, it means um, finding this kind of uh, ineffable, difficult to describe point that is not embedded in either extreme. Um, and that's not neutral. That's not a neutrality. That, that's actually a, a equanimity. That's the difference, see? It's not neutrality, it's a sense of equanimity. And so maybe that's what I'm hearing from you that you don't wanna just kind of zone out in this neutral state. You want to develop more an equanimous state, a more um, um, equal abiding state where you have no preference for anything, you don't grasp after it, you don't push it away. So I'm gonna pause for a second and see if that's landing with you, if I'm barking up the right tree on this one or if not, um, direct me a little bit further. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? Sort of, sort of. I'm, 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 I'm really. Um, I don't know. I, I never expected this to happen in this conversation where he said neutral. So, so the middle way is neutral, and I was like, no, that doesn't make sense. I, I don't think neutral will be the path to enlightenment. No, no, because if, you're, if it's just neutral, then, then you, you can run into apathy, you can run into all the near enemies around, you just don't really care. So that, that's not really what the middle way refers to. And so the third poison is not neutrality. The third poison is, like I mentioned, not knowing. It's not ignorance in the colloquial sense of like, oh, I don't know about physics, I don't know about chemistry. It's not that kind of not knowing. It's not knowing the nature of who you are and not knowing the nature of reality altogether. It's that foundational not knowing. And so the neutrality thing, um, that's not a term that's actually tossed around a whole lot. So um, it, it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with the middle way as I've come to understand it. And I think if you're looking for kind of a neutral state, I would replace that word with equanimity, with, with an equanimous state, with a state that's open and receptive. If you're talking about neutrality in that sense, where you're, you know, you're kind of neutral in a healthy sense towards things that would otherwise attract you or repel you, then if you're cautious, you can use that word, but I never use that word. So something okay. like that. And if it's not clear, just ask me another question. So- No, no, that, that, I think that's enough for now. That helps me to develop a little bit further from- Yeah, that. yeah. And maybe, and maybe look up, uh, really just look up teachings on the three poisons, the three root poisons. Um, and you will find there when you spend a little bit more time with it, the way they talk about this third, actually it's the first poison you know, the, the poison of ignorance. Um, it's not neutrality. It's actually, it, it's actually very active, believe it or not. It may be, it may be very insidious, um, but it's not passive. It's not neutral. It's really active. It's actually more active than passion. It's more active than aggression. It's happening right now as it's continually splitting the world into self and other. So it's actually the most active of all 
the poisons because it's working overtime all the time. So, okay? yeah, no, that's that's amazing. I was just thinking about that today that, yeah, so ignorance is where everything else hides behind. Correct. Right? Yeah. Every, everything until it it's manifest in a very de uh, defined way. As you say, like in anger or jealousy or or deep attraction. That, or that's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's really well said because you know you could say that anger and passion, anger and aggression, and passion—they're the active expressions of this more underlying um, ignorance. See. Because you know, ignorance is it's because it's happening all the time. It's like you said, we don't see it. It's the background. It's active expressions. You could say passion is activated ignorance. Aggression is activated ignorance. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So everything comes down to it's called marigpa, not knowing um, in the fundamental sense. So you know, check this topic out. It's super important to understand because then what happens is you reduce all the world's display, all the grasping, all the aggression we have, you can reduce it to this fundamental principle. It all comes down to not knowing, not knowing who you are, not knowing what you want, not knowing what reality is. It all comes down to that marigpa, to that not knowing. And that's what we wanna transform. We wanna transform that into wisdom. And then from wisdom, then what happens? Passion becomes transformed into compassion. Aggression becomes transformed into clarity and, and uh, activity. And so therefore you can take those poisons and this is the, the essence of Tantra. You take those poisons and you transmute them into wisdom. You know, when they, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater completely. You just have to, you know, transform your relationship to those energies. Does that make sense, amigo? Yeah, no, that, I, I'm very happy because, because I feel like I finally understood something. <laughs> cool. Excellent. Yeah, you're definitely getting it, man. Just hang in there. Keep it up. Nice Thanks, to see Andrew. you. Thank take you. Care, Thanks, Alex. Um, all right, next we'll take, we'll hear from Myra. Myra. Do you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm just surprised, Andrew. Uh, you I think somebody commented in, in the chat today how easily, easily or with the ease that you um, talk about some of these things with completely open heart, not reserving any kind of ego about it when some of us have been looking for so long for somebody to make it kind of black and white or as black and white as you can transmit it with your knowledge. So I want to thank you again because it's like some of these things are kind of uh, people reserve him like some sort of jewel or badge of honor that I cannot tell you unless you belong to this certain club. Um, so I thank you for that. But and then for uh, the person that was thinking um, with beautiful questions before, if my experience with the uh, deeper dive that you're going to do is that it's a lot like these conversations and that the information is out there and that the person will receive what is ready for. And I think you provide such a big spectrum of information that I think that with the questions that she was giving, I'm sure that she probably would enjoy it. It's my, Mara, you're so sweet. my little so invite. 
But then my other question is that every time that we begin to talk about these subjects and we have all the methods or visualizations or exercises or meditations or um, more visualization, everything becomes like a contraction. And, and I know that there is almost a way to create the merit so the opening can happen. But then I find myself in that dance of contracting and expanding as I hear you, because it's almost like we all are looking for you to tell us that we are in the right spot, we're doing it the right way. I want to have the right question um, because we need like the recipe and the recipe in my, in my growth um, in the one that I'm trying, sometimes the recipe just is an obstacle itself. Yeah. Um, so yeah. what, else, because it's like, it provides this beautiful emergent information and you are so disciplined to do it, but that same contraction, it feels like a contraction, you know, how many colors, how many hands, how many, you know, whatever it is and that by itself. But I heard Doc, uh, Dr. Thurman and you, you keep saying in the absolute or the relative, and you can say, don't take it literally. And Thurman says, you can just have Tara or Jesus, doesn't matter. It could be yeah. Gabriel. Or... <laughs> so if you can say that a little bit again, because I find myself contracting as to the method and I forget that it's just the merit to open. Yeah, a good point again. And, and what, what Myra was alluding to at the outset, just to articulate a little bit more, she's, she's being very gracious about, she's been to three of these deeper dive programs. Um, and so for her to share her experience is very generous. Thank you for doing that. So um, I, I'm not 100% sure. Maybe you can guide me a little bit more. You know, this, it's very interesting. Let me say one thing that did come to mind is that this kind of process of contraction and expansion, this is a very, very interesting process on so many levels. In, in fact, if you want to explore this a little bit more from your side, you may want to look into what's called the Spanda teachings, S-P-A-N-D-A -A in uh, Shavatantra. It's an entire kind of tradition that deals with this notion of compassion, uh, expansion and contraction. Um, and so the second thing, the other thing maybe you can help me understand a little bit better is that what comes to mind is, yes, there's, there's an incredible um, recipe book. There's an incredible set of maps, a very sophisticated body of teachings that this tradition and, and many others have that um, you know, it's one reason that when we study this stuff, it's just the first of these three stages of understanding, right? Remember, hearing, mm -hmm. contemplating, meditating. Okay. So fundamentally, we, we take this stuff, but we don't want to get stuck um, at the level of the map, at the level of these lists, these numbers, these articulations, because there, there's both promise and peril in this level of articulation. Um, one is taking that map too seriously, um, getting lost in the map. And so what we do is, is we study the map, we appreciate the clarity, we appreciate the articulation, and then we let it go and go to the cushion and we contemplate it. And we let that even further go and we meditate and we, we allow eventually all this numerology, all these lists, everything to self-liberate. And then eventually, you know, these maps literally become your territory. Then in, it's only in meditation that you really get it. It's only in meditation that this stuff really drops into your body and you know. Um, and so I think that's super important. It's what makes this stuff totally different from a usual uh, university course. It's what makes it different from philosophy. 
not that I, I'm not dissing any of that stuff. It has its place. But, you know, you're not transformed when you just left the level of maps and lists. You're transformed when you feel things, when you get things into your into your very body. So is that a little bit what you're asking, Myra? No, it's there? exactly. Thank you. Yeah, because it's what, and I do not know, like, um, Joseph, um, last time that he facilitated this meeting, uh, mentioned something that I thought was, it's, <laughs> um, how do you say, a common karma is like a consensual karma. So, so because maybe it's a consensual karma, we can relate to certain images right. or steps or, but that, that is the extent of it. The experience is a personal meditate in meditation and all the explanations are like ornaments. Exactly. Um, That's exactly right. That's exactly okay. right. Yeah. Nicely said as usual. Cool. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Always nice to Bye. see you. Mark. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Maya. Okay, a few more minutes. Cool. All right. Uh, next, we'll welcome Quilly with the audio. Cool name, Quilly. I like that. That's cool. Hi, Quilly. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for taking my question. So um, I, I've done a great deal of meditation. I've spent more than three years of med of my life in retreat. Oh, good for you. Uh, and um, the longest in there was probably four or five months. Oh. And I've practiced some in the dark. And, um, and, you know, one thing I would say about states is that, yes, states are kind of a double edged sword, but I see their faith building, they can be faith building or they can be cling, cling traps, <laughs> but eventually there is a shift in how, there has been a shift in how I am, okay? So like, I'm much, much, much more equanimous. I don't just get shoved around by whatever's happening. Oh. Or if I do, I'm, you know, I'm kind of like one of those car, cartoon things that just bounces back up again. These days, I'm interested in you said this in talking to someone today about what takes me away from my awareness or what takes me away from the um, equanimity. Mm -hmm. And so I, I express myself, I'm going to take a little bit of a risk here. Um, I express myself uh, these days as a meditator, as an end of life doula. So I accompany people before and, okay. And as a medicine woman, all three of those involve a great deal of intuition. And um, I do educate myself and continue to study. And so I, I, I remember an experience I had in high school where I was in a physics class and I was learning about space in the and I went to my teacher afterwards and I said, well, I, I can see that. I can see into that, to things. I can see the space in there at the same time. And he said, no, you can't. And, oh, it just even brings tears right now. Yeah. Time I was wasted because I could. Right. I, I, um, I don't wanna do that to someone. You know, I'm very conscious of that. I don't want to do it to myself. So I, I'm quite 
interested in what it is that does bring us back from our awareness yeah. and our lucidity. Great question. Great question. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Quilly. That's really, really, really great. So this ties in a little bit. There's a number of ways to answer that. I'm going to try to tie it into some of what we've already pinged a little bit about today. So what brings us out of that space, you can say this a number of different ways, depending on the kind of framework, the, the tradition of the school. Um, on one level, it's, it's momentum, it's habit, karma that needs to fundamentally be exhausted. So we, we have, unfortunately, um, this kind of repository of latent predispositions, propensities, bakchak in, in uh, I think that's Sanskrit, um, that, that continues to kind of push us away. Um, and, and so those propensities do it on an inner, you didn't mention what tradition you're following, but on an inner well, yoga, I'm sorry? Theravadan. Oh, fantastic. Primarily. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. So uh, uh, on, an, on an inner yogic level, they talk about it as these winds, subtle winds that, that they, they blow us away. But in the language of what we're talking about here, um, the samskaras, again, these, these kind of packets of confusion. That's why understanding these things are so important. The samskaras are what throw us away. So in, you, you probably know this from your Theravadan teaching, the, the teachings on the 12 nadanas, right? Mm -hmm. The second nadana, what's the second nadana? Samskara. What's the samskara? What's the iconography? A potter. And so what that potter does, it's always spinning. And so it's either going to spin wisdom into form or it's going to spin confusion into form. Um, and so that spinning, that movement is what's going to be generative of this loss of what keeps us, um, keeps us, you know, losing it. And so that happens literally every time we're distracted, it happens. Every time we capitulate to an emotional upheaval, it happens. Every time we capitulate to our habitual patterns, it happens. And so the reason I mentioned this is that it brings about a sense of levity, humor, and kindness for ourselves, because what it implies is whether we know it or not, every time we default into that, and we do it all the time, until we enter a path or we have practices that contract that tendency, we're reifying, strengthening that habit. It's a really bad habit. And that habit then, like I mentioned earlier, that habit decides for you, thinks for you, chooses for you. That's the habit that keeps moving you away from this. And so it, it helps within the spirit of Myra's comments, it helps to articulate that. It helps to put a name to it. Um, so that we can actually identify that, establish a relationship to it, and then start to transform it. And so, you know, there's so many methods that fundamentally do it. The entire path is designed to transform these habit patterns, um, and then eventually to remove habit altogether. That's what a Buddha is. Only Buddhas are habit-free. Everybody else is stuck in the realm of habit. And so it's like, you know, my teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, very famously said when he was asked, what is it that reincarnates? This ties into the samskaras again. What is it that reincarnates? He said, your bad habits. It's just brilliant. So every moment when you reincarnate in samsara, it's your habits that are thinking for you, deciding for you. And sometimes we even say things like, when we do something really wigged out, we totally get blown away by a samskara, by that wind. We even say things like afterwards, man, I just couldn't help myself, right? Yeah. <laughs> I just couldn't help myself. 
God, what was I thinking? I just couldn't even control myself. That's how powerful that force is. And when we die, those forces take over. Um, because if we don't have kind of executive control, the habits decide for us. They think for us. And you want to get an intimation of this? Look at how you respond in really groundless situations. Look at where you, re- how you, where do you go when things get really intense? Your habits take over. Um, and that's what's going to take over when we die. And so you can start to see that now. You can start to see that now. Establish a relationship to it, transform it. So something like that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Um, But with that map, it seems like one could never really make progress because I'm being mindful, I'm being mindful, I'm aware, and then I'm watching TV. You know, and so if I watch TV for an hour and I'm mindful for an hour, well, the habit of, of zoning out maybe has, the, I mean, it, it, I think I could never win and I am winning. <laughs> so, you know, I, it, there's this some is- other thing that is allowing me to continue to grow. I mean, I can tell you particularly qualities that I have, I'm willing to be on the edge, you know, what, what would I do? I would go and help somebody. If I can't figure out anything better, I would go and find something to offer to someone else, you know, a be of service kind of activity yeah. or generous or, you know, something in that way, which might not be directly, but it will bring me back to balance and then I can, you know, dive right into the discomfort of whatever it is. So I do, I do have that habit and still I, I, I leave, you know, and I also can't always guide someone who is wanting to, who will come out of a, of a journey and just go right back into their habits and, so I'm hearing, I'm hearing about, I'm hearing a number of different things here, and I'm not sure which one stands out for you the most. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of noodles you're throwing against the wall, and they're, they're all great. But one thing that, that did come to mind is growth does not happen by itself. <clears throat> there, if you just live your life, um, which, which most of us do on this default mode approach, right. you know, growth doesn't happen by itself. So and in fact, the default is in fact um, mostly regressive. So there has to be, uh, on some level, there has to be some effort. Um, that's the role of effort on the path. So again, with the rest of what you said, I'm not quite sure which of those, and maybe we can just pick one because there are a lot of different tracks that I saw you throwing up there. Is there one you want to kind of focus on before I let this go? Because I heard a number of different things and I'm not sure which one's really standing out for you. Well, I, I think what it is that, that, that the core is, what is it that makes, the, there's something in between that makes the habit take over. To what, what am I doing that's allowing the habit in? Is it re- really as simple as just letting go of awareness? It just Exactly, exactly. You're succumbing to ignorance. Um, you're succumbing to marigpa. You're, you're just capitulating. We're, we're practicing ignorance all the time, whether we know it or not until we start to open up and access it. So yeah, it's, it's just the force of that, that, pop, that samskara, that habit is so strong. It's that momentum. It's like, you know, imagine you have the Titanic 
streaming across the Atlantic, you may put it in neutral. You may try to turn it around. It ain't going to happen on the dime. There's so much momentum. And if you believe in rebirth, it's not just the momentum of the habits in this life. It's the momentum of the habits from countless. Have you ever really thought about countless? That's a really long time, right? So there's a tsunami, whatever metaphor you want to use, there is a tsunami of these habits. And so when you relax, those habits, then just, they just continue to do their thing. That tsunami continues to exert its force. And so we just continue playfully with a sense of humor, sense of appreciation. Wow, I'm an absolute virtuoso in this capitulation to whatever, <clears throat> because I've been in the practice room of ignorance forever. And so we laugh at it. We smile at it. We go, okay, there it is again. Now let's counteract it. Let's work with it in these ways. And so we're patient. We laugh. We continue. We continue. We continue. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, very welcome. All right. Maybe one last one. All right. Thanks, Quilly. Cool. Uh, this is a chat question from Tim. Why do you think lucid dreams can be so elusive? They seem to often just come of their own accord, even though I'm intending and trying to have them each night. Yeah, this is the single top of the list, top of the charts, number one question. Um, I have written and talked about this so much that on instances where I have questions like this, with your kind permission, I'm going to uh, refer you to the sources where I do this. It's a great question. Um, it's literally the number one common question. And so if you go to the nightclub site, um, I probably have three or four webinars specifically devoted to that. If you listen to the interviews by um, Charlie Morey, um, Daniel Love, um, who's the one I always forget? Um, Claire Andy, Johnson. Claire Johnson, I don't know why. Claire Johnson. I ask these dream yoga experts, lucid dreaming experts, exactly the same question every single time because I love to hear their respective answers to the single most important question. And so because I've written, talked about it, spoke about it, interviewed about it so much, I'm going to refer you to those sources, okay? okay. Um, there's so many reasons why that happens. And they're actually not connected, uh, not disconnected at all to Quilly's last um, question, very similar. It's just the power of our habits of non-lucidity. We practice non-lucidity all the time. Every time you capitulate to mindlessness, that's the practice of non-lucidity. A, a lucid dream is a mindful dream. We are constantly just defaulting into mindless states. That's just what we practice. We practice non-lucidity all the time. And so that's the principal reason, just to give you something to work with. And this is why, to counteract it, meditation is colossally important because meditation is the practice of lucidity. So you only have to look at your mind closely, honestly, and realize, oh my goodness, I never realized that I get lost in distraction all the time. Every time you do that, that's the practice of non-lucidity. That's why you're non-lucid at night. Okay, great question. I mean, really good one. So. Oh, Andrew, really quick right. before we go, could you say one thing about the recordings for the deeper dive? Oh, um, you're, yeah, so the, yes, exactly. That's another advantage to doing this live because, I mean, um, on, on the line, because when I do these live, they're never recorded. This event will be recorded, but it will only be recorded for people who participate. In other words, I'm not gonna archive it and it won't be available for but a month or so after the program. So yes, so for people who miss it, who are out of the country, 
everything will be recorded. You can submit your questions in advance. I'll answer them there. And that's also a great, it's one advantage to being able to attend it, relax. You don't have to pen everything down and take notes for yours so you have access to recording. So thank you for bringing that up. But anyway, thanks everybody. Got to go. See you, bye. It's been fun. Um, I'll either be here next week or my dear friend Joseph will be here. He's terrific. But again, thanks for hanging with us. I really appreciate it. I have fun with these things. An awesome set of questions today. So if you just leave the chat room open a little bit, Andy, so I can just see what came in, that'd be awesome. Bye, everybody.